Greetings, welcome to the Stats Bomb Podcast, as intermittent as it may be. Uh, we are at October already, October 2nd of 2014. My name is Ted Knutson, I'm here with... Benjamin Pugsley, hello. Hey, how you doing? All good, all good. Well, so we're finally into autumn, and, and in the last two days, England finally feels like autumn. It's, it's cool, it's crisp. Wherever you live in the, in the tropics probably doesn't, but you know that's the hardship that you have to bear. Uh, it's still quite nice here. Pretty sunny and uh, and then the odd crazy thunderstorm. I did want to be able to call October October. I don't know if you saw the baseball the other day. Oh, Jeff. don't even. Oh, I, 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 it's I, painful. It's painful. I, 162 I st- games, and they had like ridiculous stuff. They have to play a one a win and in essentially, and then obviously they get beat by a team that bunts all the time. I, I actually stayed up and watched it till. I don't know, quarter past seven in the morning. I was, just distra- I was absolutely distraught. Oh, it's incredible. Horrible, horrible stuff. Anyway, we're not talking baseball. I, are we? I think something... we're supposed to talk about football today. Uh... I think so. We've got the wrong sport. <laughs> All right, so a uh, uh, list of topics today. Uh, we, we kind of uh, did some crowdsourcing because we're a little lazy. Uh, but also, no, to involve our readers in, in what we choose. Um, so uh, we're going to look at, uh, is Chelsea's form sustainable? Um, what's wrong, or is anything wrong at uh, Manchester City? What's definitely wrong at Liverpool? Uh, we'll also talk about some early season metrics uh, in the Premier League, like, you know, sort of break it into the, the tiers. And uh, a little bit about the Champions League later, and then at the end we'll talk about uh, some data sources, uh, which is probably the most common question that, that I've gotten over the last two years. But, you know, I've written about it, and we'll, we'll repeat it here. All right, so, Chelsea. They look awesome. They're pretty good, aren't they? I, I think I think they're pretty good. Top of the table, 16 points, scoring all the goals in the world, kind of crushing teams led by the, the little mighty man Fabregas, who I can bet Arsenal wish they could have had him really, Ted, but, you know. Um, but Chelsea Chelsea just look fantastic across the board. They're out shooting teams uh, by six shots per game. Shots on target, three and a half shots per game. They're out shooting teams by. Their scoring's up. Their, their save percentage is okay. Everything looks absolutely fine. They seem like they're the, the kind of perfect team that's going to romp away with 98 points and kind of just kill this league with eight games left. Fabregas has six assists and a 90% passing percentage. How, how is that possible? It's, it's well, it's, it's Fabregas possible, isn't it, I think? Um, that's an interesting one, just very quickly on Fabregas. If you, I'm assuming you're aware of the kind of trend he had at Barcelona. Have you have you seen this kind of looked at recently? Like first, where he starts the season on fire. Yeah, the first and half, just, second half. I actually, I was, I did that for someone who requested it this summer, and like injury, it's, it's no? clear as day. Like first half of the season, he was really good, and like I think he got ground down over the course of the season. It came out uh, a few weeks ago that this is the first year in a while that he's played without pain. Uh, he had a sports hernia, and it, they said that the, he's he's basically okay now. Yeah, and, and that was kind of the, the, the obvious explanation. There wasn't really going to be a theory where he was on the clutch, was it, or something like that. Do you know what I mean? This is the same player. You get Players get grounded down over the season, especially if you have hernias or groins or anything like that. Or anyway, Fabregas is... Yeah, hernias, backs, groins, hamstrings, calves. If you have that and you carry it and you don't get it looked at, you don't get it opt, you don't get it anything, you will, you will in the end, grind down. Once you start getting past 2,000 minutes in the season, you're going you're gonna to start breaking down. Yep. But... Chelsea, but anyway, Fabregas. Chelsea, they, obviously Fabregas is powering a lot of this and basically pairing him with Costa, they essentially brought to Chelsea this kind of great one-two punch, the great provider and then the great finisher. And those are two things 
as good as Chelsea were last year and as kind of solid as their metrics were, those were two things they didn't really have. They didn't have that midfield creator. They didn't have that ace kind of finisher. And now they have them. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like, as good as Oscar is, as good as, as Eden Hazard is, like, it's just, you put Susk in there and you just realize that there's a huge gulf in class between them. Like, he's one of the very few guys that do what he does. And nobody does it better. Like, that's, that's the shocking part this summer. You know, Sus came over for what, like 30, 32 million pounds? It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't a massive amount of money. He's, he's 27 years old. You know, he, he, the Barcelona fans eventually turned on him for whatever reason because he, he wasn't Xavi. Okay, well, that's fine. He's not going to be Xavi. Like, no one is Xavi. <laughs> So, mm. And and Rakitic isn't Xavi either. Like he, he plays in a different style. Like you watch you watch Barcelona. He he lends solidity to them, but he's the, nobody's going to replace that guy. Um, on the other hand, no one's going to replace Sesk either because what he does is unique across multiple leagues. Mm. Now he's a he's a strange one with Barcelona. Obviously, the fans that you see online are kind of can be very touchy and very kind of fickle and turn on players. But the the, the actual the, where I live, they very very rarely turn on players, and that was one player they actually turned on. I can't remember of my time of living here of them ever going after a player like that and literally sarcastically clapping him when he was substituted. Yeah, unbelievable. And you, I can't. I, I just I don't really know why. I don't know what the dynamic is. I don't know if it's something because he left at 16 and went somewhere else, and this is some kind of long hangover memory. I don't know, really know what it is. Whether that you know, because Barcelona were playing him in all different kinds of positions, and he didn't perform to the absolute maximum. I don't really know why they were, why they turned on him, and why they picked on him. But he was still a, a very, very good player. You think? Is you he, think at some point the Barcelona would stop buying Arsenal players? By the way. Like Henri came over, you know, towards the end of his career, and was still pretty good. Or the end of his, you know, European career. Um, uh, you know, Fabregas, they they kind of sarcastically clapped at the end of it. Gleb was terrible. Uh, Song was terrible, and they still bought Vermaelen, who Arsenal didn't want. <laughs> You're like, you, you, yeah, it's insane. You would have thought it ended at Alexander Gleb, really, wouldn't you? After that happened, you would have thought that's it. You can't buy any more dummies from Arsenal, you know. Uh, we had a little bit of tef- technical difficulties there, but uh, so coming back to, to where we started with, is Chelsea's current form sustainable? Uh, I think I think some of it is. I think if we look at their kind of underlying numbers, the underlying numbers look absolutely great. You know, they, we talked about them out shooting teams heavily and out shooting teams heavily by shots on target. But if you kind of look at some of their their, their schedule, they played Burnley, Leicester, Swansea, and Villa, who were the four worst shot teams in the league so far and obviously they played Man City and Everton away from home as well I think that maybe not as sustainable as it currently is I don't think they're kind of going to outshoot teams by this uh, margin that they kind of are at the moment and they probably won't carry on outscoring teams by this same margin yeah, I don't think I mean they've had a, they've had a reasonably soft schedule to start with um, I don't think that they'll maintain this level of dominance but on the other hand, you know they they look awesome, and and you know at the end of the day, you know, their shot differential I think is second in the league. Um, the, the shots on target is first by a lot. Um, in fact, they're they're basically double what City have. Um, uh, you know, so um, recently uh, I I look back at like Atletico are crazy. They just they score constantly off of set pieces, and so I look back at a couple years of Atletico set pieces. Um, like via video, and one of the things that consistently shocked me is how strong Diego Costa is. I mean, yeah, he looks like a forty-year-old man, sure, whatever. But like, you look at him, he doesn't—he doesn't look like he's—he's he's, you know stronger than everybody out there. But what was amazing over the the years in La Liga 
is he just moved people aside when he wanted to. It was like center backs that are that are big and powerful, and he shouldn't be. He just like nudges them out of the way, and then gets a header on goal, and is he scores? It's unbelievable. Yeah, he's he just looks like a fantastic player. His ability to kind of find space in the box is is also something that is a is a very important trait for most strikers, most elite strikers anyway. And you kind of look at the way he kind of like ghosts and just finds himself in that right kind of spot. He has that to his armory. He has that power and pace that you just previously talked about. He's aggressive. He'll kind of rile centre backs up. He is a he looks to be a, an, an elite centre forward. I I think and and he, you know people he, lose him more than you ever expect. Like, how, how do they lose him? I, the, it, he just anticipates the game better than others, I guess, and you know, kind of moves in a direction, and suddenly he's gone. <laughs> and yeah, and I think I think this is what kind of separates some of the elite centre forwards. We see a lot of forwards in this league, and some of them, you know, are very very powerful, and some of them are really really quick. And you think, you know, this this guy should be a brilliant centre forward. But I think sometimes the ability to either find your to either make space for yourself with the ball inside the you know inside the box in a in a very like kind of high probability area to score goals from or to be able to have good enough movement to find those spaces in the box so a guy can pass to you in, the, in that same kind of high, you know, in that red zone, and basically find that space or create that space yourself is a very, very, very big deal for some of these strikers. And it kind of what separates Aguero and, and Diego Costa from some, of the, from some of the lesser guys. And basically, Diego, Host, Diego Costa is massively being helped by Fabregas. Fabregas is six assists and his ability just to, to find those cutbacks or to find those dinks or to find those through balls, they are they are very, very good one two tango. Yeah, and it does take two to tango. Right? You if if you have Sesk out there and, and he doesn't have guys making the runs or seeing the runs, then you know it's not that useful. And if you have Diego Costa or whomever um, you know, making those runs and you can't find the guys, then again it's not that useful. So like you have to have that, that type of pairing. It's a that's I guess that's a, a kind of chemistry element that you would say in the NBA, um, you know, finding guys that are able to to see and read the game sort of at the same level, um, and that part of that comes with time, but part of that also just comes with guys who have that type of vision and they're they're tough to find. Yeah, I think so. Some of it can be chemistry, but some of it, is, like I said, it's just high high end quality players manage to do this. You put them together, and you know they will manage to do this. And you know it's also important to remember that they have. They operate in very different areas of the field as well. It's not like they're treading on each other's toes or kind of clogging up the attack. There's a very, very clear dynamic. If Costa will play on the shoulder, he will kind of work the defenders. And Fabregas is that little bit deeper, and you know he's just going to find him. My my thing with Chelsea on their sustainability is uh, things that are going well for them. I think they're they're a tremendous shots team. They're very, very solid defensively. They have the ability to shut games down when they're one nil up. They they basically have the full tactical kind of package, and now they have the, the full personnel package. On the on the downside, one I I worry about their schedule a little bit, and they've played some softer teams so far. And the second one is injury. Now Chelsea don't suffer a lot of injuries. So I don't know why. I don't know what's happening there or or anything like that. But if a Fabregas or a Costa goes down, how much does that kind of affect this Chelsea team? Yeah, I think they can get by with Remy up front and still be okay. Um, the the question that I have is if Fabregas or um, or Matic goes down then I think they have more troubles because they just didn't perform that well uh, with Mikel in that spot last year or Lampard or whomever. Um, and then, yeah, like Suska just adds the, the huge extra value to most of their chances. All right, so transitioning from that to, to the next team, uh, the other sort of co-favorite at the beginning of the season anyway, is something wrong with Manchester City? Uh, if you look at the, the metrics, um, you look at their third in, uh, in shots on target differential, they're, I think, fourth or fifth, even fifth in, fifth, in shot yeah. differential. 
Um, is there a problem, and is it fixable? Oh, oh damn that. I'm obviously not the most objective person. It doesn't seem like they have quite the same snap about them so far in these first six games. That That kind of dynamism that they had at the start of last year where they were able to just create so many kind of plus chances every single game against every single type of opposition. It doesn't quite seem like they have that same snap about them. Is some of this due to the the, the kind of teams they've played and having played Chelsea and, and played Liverpool and Arsenal? Newcastle away and and Arsenal? Sorry, Arsenal as well. Sorry. And uh, and uh, and Arsenal as well. And you know, it it is probably the toughest schedule that a team has faced in the league so far. So we look at those shot differentials and the shots on target differentials, and and probably they will. They will rise a little bit as you know, kind of they come into the easier schedule with teams like Aston Villa and Tottenham coming up with the easy team. You know? <laughs> and as they, as they kind of, as they kind of, as they kind of rise, as they kind of play those teams and move away from that really hard, tough first part of the schedule, I think you'll see their shots numbers rise. And and maybe we'll kind of forget about the the question, like is something wrong? And we'll basically say it was just a, it was just a really rough patch of the schedule. They're not going to look as impressive. You know, they still managed to get 11 points on the board. And, you know, the, the, the shots numbers will improve, but I still have a little nagging feeling that something isn't quite as as good as last year. I, I think the two questions just, that I would have about City or, you know, just observations is, one, they are a year older, and they didn't really get much younger. Um, in fact, they, they ended up signing older guys to longer-term contracts. Uh, if, if you're the richest team in the league, you can get away with that somewhat. But again, like they, they actually do have to pay attention to FFP. We we waited for years to see if it was going to matter, and it does at least somewhat. But the the bigger thing is they've had injuries. You know, like Jovetic and, and Aguero are kind of touch and go, and like that's with older players and the injuries. Like you know, you, they start to log more miles on the older players. Do they get worn down? Uh, it's a it's a tricky situation for City. Uh, but yes, that that schedule has been. Super tough. So, like, don't don't read too much into the fact that they're only sort of the third best team in the league or whatever. Yeah, and I think so. I think if you kind of the schedule has been tough, and if they didn't just kind of shit the bed against Stoke, they'd be sat here two points behind Chelsea, having played a really tough schedule, and you'd be like, oh man, you know, everything's okay. They kind of grounded this out. They're on fourteen points. Everything looks fine. As regards to the injuries, I think Jovetic matters. I think he's a He's a different type of player to anyone they've kind of got there currently. He can drop a little bit deeper, tremendously gifted physically, you know, and he's been injured. Aguero's kind of feeling his way back. Nazari had a groin issue that kind of got opt, and he's done now for, for six weeks. And, you know, Fernando as well. I think Fernando would have given them some, some options tactically of whether, they, you know, because sometimes you look at the games and they've been caught with just playing Torre and Fernandinho. And I think if they could have just played Fernando with Torre or Fernando or all three of them even I think we might have seen a little bit more structure and a little bit more stability with City but I, I agree with you on the age thing and I kind of wrote about this earlier earlier in the season you know you get older every year and at some point it will matter some of these players will just go they'll, they'll, it, you know it's, sometimes it's a very gradual decline and everything's nice and all the rest of it. Sometimes it just goes. And Dimakalis is probably at the age where it's just going to go Hang on, sooner or let's, later. Let's use that as a segue to the other team that we're supposed to talk about here. What's wrong with Liverpool? <laughs> Liverpool. Sometimes well, we, it just goes. <laughs> we, sometimes it just goes. Maybe we should just talk about what's right. All right. So and, then, what's, and then we'll just have silence where there's nothing right. They're, they're, <laughs> they're plus six on shot differential. Uh, so that's you know that's actually pretty good, but um, you know when when Balotelli's taking like ten a game from an average of twenty four yards, it's not quite so useful. 
Uh, no, no. Shots on target differential, they're, they're, they're plus one. Uh, the, I mean, the big difference is just the quality of chances they're creating. But and we, we, we knew this was going to happen. Like, we talked about it in the, in the, in the summer. Like, teams were going to change how they played against Liverpool. They weren't going to just allow them to counter. And, I mean, you could say that teams don't allow, you know, Real Madrid to counter, but, like, it, it happens. Like, when, when Liverpool have the chance, it'll happen a couple times a game. But the difference between having Sturridge and Suarez, who basically haven't been there, like Sturridge has been injured almost the whole time, uh, along with Sterling and, and that core of players, versus having Balotelli and Markovic um, and Sterling, then it's it's fairly significant. Like if I I, I heard from uh, Guillaume Balagate um, a couple weeks ago, he was talking about just how different uh, a player Mario Balotelli was versus you know what they had before, like in Sturridge and, and Suarez. Like Balotelli will tend to drop deep, he'll tend to connect play. Um, guys often need to run around him, but the problem with Balotelli is that he's also a black hole. He's got sort of, in American terms, he's almost the Carmelo Anthony problem, where essentially, you know, he gets the ball and he shoots, and he doesn't necessarily bring other players into it as much as as he should. Um, I, I know you watched a little bit of Champions League last night, and and were treated to a little, some special Mario action. Yeah, it was. It's- I was just talking before we started this recording, and the, the first one of the first things I saw when I walked into the bar where I was watching this last night was Balotelli beat a couple of players just inside the opposition's half. He's running towards goal, and you're like, man, look, he's going on a break. And then he shot from 40 yards, and it went about 80 yards over the bar. And you were like, ah, that's the Mario I remember. From the, the old days of Man City, this was the, the, the kind of the maddening talent that he is. Tremendously physically gifted, he can beat players, he can hold them off. Is that electric burst of pace and then a little light switches on his head. He's like, I'm a shoot from wherever I am. And he shoots from wherever he is and they never go in. Yeah, it's and they never go on target. It, and like this is this is what he was towards the last year and a half at Man City. And it was it was maddening, like, you know? It's it's a strange thing. Like you look at Mario and you're like, Man, you have all the physical gifts in the world and someone just needs to channel them in the right direction and whether he yeah, a lot of things are at the end of the day are up to Mario, but he is a different player, and that's that's kind of the one of the big crucial elements. But the the thing that I was alluding to, uh, you know, sometimes it just goes is I like Steve and Gerard looks like the the legs have finally gone. Yeah, it it does, and it's, I don't think it's it's not always very nice to watch them where the 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 kind of you know the old war horses are on the downslope, and you know you kind of see, and it's just a, a faded power, and people are running past him, and you know, and lesser players are just kind of wiping the floor. And it's not a very nice thing to watch. It was something that Wenger always kind of kept an eye on, and at twenty nine, thirty years old, they all went, they all got sold, and because you kind of know physiologically that there's going to be a decline at some point. In the, in the kind of early 30s or, you know, that 33 age. And it looks like it, basically over the summer, it happened in about, you know, in the space of six weeks with Gerard. But I think with Liverpool on a on a wider question, you know, it's their, their shot numbers are fine. You know, the 15 half shots per game, they're only conceded, they conceded nine and a half. But, the, you know, that's not translating into shots on target. They're only out shooting by shots on target. One shot per game, but the shots, six shots per game. So basically, they're just not, getting shots on target as good as they were last year. Why? It's probably about talent, really, isn't it? It's, it Suarez is the, the mega talent. He was the kind of the straw that stirred the drink, and everything kind of went through him, and they counterattacked at speed, and everything just looks absolutely fine. Their scoring percentage was up. They were dominating teams out, shooting them, creating these brilliant chances in the 18-yard in the box, and all that has just evaporated over the summer. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it looks like. It's partly... It's partly um 
Suarez, but I, I don't think that's the, the sole reason. I mean, again, Sturge has been gone. Uh, Suarez is important, and some of these guys are young. You know, they, they're developing, and two years from now, like, it's entirely possible that they'll be in exactly the same spot that they were last year. Like, they have an amazing array of, of attacking talent uh, with a different person at kind of the bottom of the diamond. Uh, one of the things about Gerard that, that kind of seems to have happened, though, is, you know, we're six games through the season, so it's, it's not uh, that small of a sample size. Last year, uh, in terms of project- uh, possession-adjusted numbers, Gerard was making about five tackles and interceptions a game. Like, that's, that's a pretty reasonable amount, and that's, that's what you need from a guy playing that position. This year, still playing the base of the diamond, he's making just over two. That's a big difference at the end of the day, per 90 minutes. So that has to get made up from somewhere, you know, and if if you can't make up for Gerard and he's still playing in that position, then everybody else has to pick up the slack, and I don't think they can. I don't, I don't think it, with that big of a gulf that you can make up for it and still keep him in that position. Yeah, I think, I'm, I'm trying to think this through here, and do you think that Liverpool may well have missed a trick? Obviously that summer recruitment they bought, Markovic, they bought some very good young players who you're going to have to wait maybe a year or two or three to see just how good they are, you know, because some of these are very young players. Did they miss a trick of not buying a dominant kind of midfielder? And did they not do that because that would have meant possibly the end of Gerrard? Well, I mean, I, I think they definitely <coughs> missed a trick. Um, and it might have been the, you know, the, the money that they spend on Lalana should have gone towards someone like Danny Parejo, um, even Chigarini, who, who was available for cheap. You know, they, in terms of Liverpool numbers, I think he was like between five and ten million euros, and his salary isn't isn't enormous. And that was a guy that that could have filled that role. Not that he would have been Gerard good like Gerard was last year, but it, it was just. And you know, Emery Chan is twenty. He's not he's not old. So that's a lot of expectations. Uh, that's the big difference in in type of the the Liverpool recruiting versus the City recruiting. City were able to to buy sort of fully matured products. Um, uh, last summer, and you know they were buying 27, 28 year olds, but they knew what they were getting. They they weren't waiting for guys to develop, so they were able to to plug those guys in immediately and expect full production and that they were fully grown. Like Markovic is is not fully grown. Raheem Sterling, who is one of the best players in the league, but is still so young that you have to really watch his his minutes. Right, like Jack Wilshere uh, four years ago or whatever mm-hmm. looks similar to that where he was unbelievable, but. He's a small guy, he can get injured, and you have to be careful about how much they're playing him. He looked like he was playing on fumes last night. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a, a real danger, because he is that, that, that kind of go-to player now, isn't he? He's, you know, he's one of the best players now. in the league. But I, I honestly believe this. He is one of the best players in the league right now. He's that talented. But you've got to manage him. You've got to be really careful. Yeah, you do have to be really careful. And, you know, you overplay him, and, and this kind of brings us back to, you know, some of the issues that were that not just Man City fans, all fans were kind of racing towards Liverpool last year. That the extra games in Europe do have an effect. You know, they do kind of grind down squads. They do, you know, kind of force you to kind of rotate, and you have to rest plays and you have to take them out. You can't play Sterling at what? What is he now? Twenty years old. You can't literally play him full ninety minutes in Europe and then three days later in the league and then count and rinse and repeat all the way through the season. It will burn him out. He will get injured. You know, he will come back and then he'll be rushed back and then he'll get injured again. And on, that, on and on that kind of cycle goes. The, the extra games and extra intensity of the games means that you're going to have to rotate these players. You're going to have to bring Sterling out every now and again. But the, the problem that Liverpool have at the moment, because obviously Suarez is gone and Sturridge is injured and Coutinho is trying to find some form, they literally can't afford to leave him out. 
Yeah, he's, he's he's that guy. He's their creative catalyst. It's it's really tricky. I mean, I I yeah, like Liverpool. I I think that they're not as good as I I was kind of hoping or expecting. Part of that is Sturge's loss. Part of it is the teams play them differently. They they will just you know collapse and stay compact and say, hey, go ahead and try and break us down. We don't think you can. Yeah, and I think I think that's happened, and I think that that tactic's going to be more effective this year as well, be, because of the fact that there is no Suarez, and Suarez was like, yeah, I know, like you, I think his impact, his loss is a little bit more important than you probably do, but I think he was the guy that even if you played a deep defence, he was still able to do something. Yeah, he's he's a magician. There's no question. He's he's unbelievable, even in tight spaces, and obviously yeah, and they think- don't have that guy now. I think so. Just one last point on Liverpool's kind of recruiting thing before we talk about if they'll improve or not. Do you think that they kind of made a little bit of an error in not buying, this is something that Man City used to do, not buying 23 and 24-year-olds in regards to instead of 20-year-olds and 21-year-olds like Markovic and Can? Is it is those extra two or three years where you have a little bit more sample, you have a little bit of more of a mature player and individual able to kind of settle into a new club? Should they have gone a little bit older in trying to do this instead of buying a little bit cheaper and buying 20-year-olds well, like Cap. I, the question is whether they could find those guys to still fit the roles, and I don't think they probably could. You know, I think mm. I think that, that at the end of the day, it ends up being a choice in how you spend your resources. Liverpool are, are using this year of, of Champions League to hopefully build for the long term, but if, if it would have cost them basically one less player um, if, they, if they buy a 23, 24-year-old, or even two less players, depending on who they were looking at, yeah. Yeah, they couldn't do it. They, they really needed the depth, too. And to be fair to them, like the, the guys they picked up at, at the fullback slots are worlds better than they had last year. So they've definitely improved in that area. I wouldn't have paid the, the amount that they did for Lalana, but I liked most of their other deals. Markovic, I, I don't have any data on him. I, I would have, you know, if, if I would have gone with leagues that I had data on, I would have chosen uh, Memphis to pay instead. But. Yeah, oh, yeah, because he's the, the guy. Is he still tearing up the, the Dutch league? Well, he's injured he right now, but he was unbelievable he? in the first five games. Yeah. Well, this brings back to Liverpool. What's going to happen with them then? Is this is this who they are? Are they going to be the the kind of bubble sixth or seventh team, or are we going to see some some gradual improvement when some of these injured players come back and you know there's a little bit more time for these players to settle in? I I think they'll improve. I think I still think Rodgers is a good manager. He's flexible. Like I, I watched closely sort of the second matchups that he had against teams last year, and he definitely got smarter with how they how they did. They got better against you know handling the press. They have a lot of depth of talent. I think the they actually you know if you kind of combine their talent this year and next year, they'll be one of the you'd say they're definitely one of the top four teams in in like overall talent, um, depending on whether Manchester United fix their entire back structure. But uh, so I mean it's 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 a roll of the dice essentially for the the fourth place slot. Um, and we'll we'll see. Uh, so the other team that's there is Arsenal, and you don't want to go overboard on Arsenal, but they've got numbers for the first time in, in three years look really good. But they have the same problem, interestingly, that Liverpool do, and it's it's exactly the same reason why they have the same problem. Uh, if you look at their shots, like both Liverpool and Arsenal have like really good shots against number. So Liverpool are giving up 9.5 uh, a game, Arsenal only giving up eight shots against. That's really good. But the shots on target that they give up are actually way higher than you would expect for, um, for kind of the league average. And the reason why that is, is they're sort of playing a higher press. They want to contain play. And then once it gets back to the, the, you know, the back four or the back five in particular, their defensive midfielder doesn't have the legs to, to break up play the way that you would say Fernandinho does or you know, Matic does <coughs> or any of those guys. And it, it's, it's like such a clear issue with these teams. Like you're weak at that position, and therefore you're giving up better chances constantly on the, on the defensive side. 
Yeah, I really thought this was going to be the, the moment when you could finally talk about Arsenal in happy, glowing terms. I, it is not. They're better. They're, they're, much, <laughs> they're much better overall. Like You can definitely see the additional talent up front has made a huge difference in their shot numbers and the way that they attack. And they're still learning, too. Like Ars- Arsene Wenger has not done particularly smart things with his formation and personnel choices for, for the beginning of the season. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, no, he's, he's only been around 18 years. You know, Give him some time. No, this is true, and I, I completely agree with you. And the kind of numbers back it up. What you're talking about, the kind of uh, the percentage of shots on target against that Liverpool and Arsenal are giving up. Arsenal have this, you know, if you call this kind of shot on target against percentage, which is the, you know, the, the, how many the percentage of shots on target the opposition records against you. Arsenal are second worst team in the league, and Liverpool the third worst team in the league. Only West Ham are worst are worse than those two teams. So basically. You know the opposition are shooting, and so many of those shots are finding on target. And I agree with you. Some of it's personnel. Some of it might be playing too high a line. Some of it might be chasing games. There's a, there's a, there's a whole kind of melting pot of reasons of why it's happening. But you know, I kind of think with a with a good tactical structure and good personnel, you know, you shouldn't be conceding that that many shots on target against. I I don't think so. You know, you kind of bring it back. Is this the lack of true defensive midfielder for Arsenal is just kind of one of the things, just a just a small snippet that's kind of costing them. Yeah, certainly, and you've seen it game after game. You know, it's it's a long term problem in Wenger's reign where they have not had uh, a physically sort of imposing or or you know, just say dynamic, physically dynamic person um, at the at at the the, the six, I guess, uh, the defensive midfielder position, and because of that, like they end up. You know, guys end up running against Koscielny and Mertesack, or you end up getting more red cards. Uh, it, it's just like all of all of the tactical choices that teams make have trade-offs. Like you're never going to have kind of the perfect system. Uh, Guardiola for a while thought that he had the perfect system, but it turns out that when you have that sort of possession game and you have your fullbacks really high, um, you know, you can't just play the even Sergio Busquets there and two center backs without teams running you over on the counterattack. Like Arsenal have a, a similar problem. Liverpool have a similar problem. They they don't have a guy that's super fast there, <coughs> and because of that, you know, teams get to run against center backs. And in the Premier League, the attackers are so good that if that happens, you know, you're going to give up goals. Yeah, and it's, I think it is interesting with Arsenal. Arsenal are kind of the most Barcelona tiki taka like team that I can find in the league. They pass the ball more than any other team by a mile. They pass it more in the final third. Basically, was basically saying they're kind of pinning the opposition back in their kind of zone. And you know when this happens and you get counted on, those counters are going to be really dangerous. And they, you know, I'm not entirely sure that Mertesacker is probably the best personnel you could find back there for a for a team that plays pretty high up that presses the opposition back. People running at Mertesacker is you know is, is not going to be it's, it's, not, it's not going to end well if you kind of if it happens too many well, a, too many times over a, the season. ABB and Spurs had the same problem. And, yeah. and like a lot of you know, we talked about how many errors Spurs uh, defenders made last season, but a lot of that has to be systemic. Where if you're putting your guys on islands all the time, and you're saying yeah. you have to compete with Sergio Aguero or Luis Suarez or whomever running at you, you are going to make errors. You just are. It's impossible not to make errors. But if you have a second or a third guy that's helping you out, that's how you funnel those guys out. Like for whatever reason, Mourinho's structure uh, with his teams, and to some extent Pellegrini as well, and the personnel there, I mean there always is that second or third guy. There's that covering player that helps break up attacks. Yeah, and I think this, just on, on back to Man City very briefly, this is one of the reasons I was very excited about Mangala's debut and having Fernandinho fit, that Man City would be able to kind of push teams all the way back in the final third and have that kind of triumvirate of company, 
Fernandinho and uh, Mangala, who are all very physical, all very, very quick, who would be able to cope with those counter-attacks. And I think you do need the personnel. And maybe Arsenal haven't quite got that at the moment. And, you know, I'm actually quite quite bullish on Arsenal at the moment, surprisingly. It's been a long while since you could kind of sit here and say, Arsenal are heavily out-shooting teams. They're kind of winning their own battle. They're heavily out-passing them. They're doing so many things right. And there's just that tiny little one thing that's kind of handicapping at the moment. And it is that, you know, that, that kind of propensity to give up shots on target on the counter. And it's something that killed Via both. I, I, I would say they look great, but they have an Achilles heel. And yeah. that Achilles I, heel I, is addressable and should have been addressed this summer. Yeah. Uh, so, like... Almost. An almost good... An almost good section on Arsenal. <laughs> uh, so, a couple other teams that, that I wanted to, to talk about briefly that I think are really intriguing, um, and there, there's a, some controversy, essentially, in the numbers. Uh, Southampton, in one of my predictive models, is actually the best team in the league. Yeah. That, that's surprising. And I, I think James Grayson uh, has, them, has them up there as well, so it's not just mine. Um, they, their, their chance quality, I think, is really good. They deny a lot of chances. But th- wasn't this team supposed to get, you know, be in relegation battles this year? Weren't they supposed to be? T- <laughs> Who was it? Was it Robbie Robbie Savage? I think picked them to finish dead last. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, Robbie Savage. Uh, I don't think Southampton were ever ever going to go down, but I don't think there was many people who would say, who would sit here and say after six games this is what they would look like. And you know, we kind of look at the table, and you know, they're they're going really well on the table. Are they, are they second, are they? Yeah, they're second with thirteen points. But it's not just that. Their, their numbers are outstanding. Their, their kind of shots on target numbers are second best in the league, just a fraction behind Chelsea. Their shots numbers are absolutely fine. It all looks really, really nice. The PDO is a little high, but that's okay. They spent loads of time winning, which kind of boosts that a little bit. Right. I don't think anyone thought that we would be looking at this team and basically saying they would be taking over 60% of the shots and 60% of the shots on target after this, for me, this number again. For me, the big surprise is, you know, I... I'm like, okay, I, I kind of want to say that they're getting lucky, but in reality, they're not. Like, they are, they are dominating teams. Yeah, it's not, this, you know, there might be a shade of luck, but this isn't anything to be like, oh my God, it's all going to come crashing down, like Aston Villas will come crashing down. It's not, gonna, it's not like that. There's a touch of luck, maybe, but a lot of the rest of it is very, very good. Yeah, like, they, you know, the they haven't faced necessarily great teams. Um, <coughs> they, the QPR, uh, Swansea, who's the next team we're going to talk about briefly, Newcastle, West Ham. So, like, they, they're definitely, they've got a big boost based on, on who they face. But they did face Liverpool earlier in the year, and supposedly they're pretty good. And they did face West Brom, who actually are uh, good and, and sort of quietly uh, going to be a very steady steady team this year. Yeah, you know, we, we kind of talked a little bit about Chelsea's and, and Man City's kind of schedule so far. And, you know, obviously they lost a pretty close game away at Liverpool. Drew at home with West Brom, but then have knocked off West Ham, Southampton, Swansea away, who had a red card, and you know QPR. Those aren't the best teams in the world, but for a Southampton team that was gutted, it was it was they lost five starters by my count. Yeah, I, I think I think, I think they'll regress a bit, but they they look all right. Um, you know, I I they could they could make battle for fourth. I'm not I'm not convinced yet because I think. Uh, Six games can be sometimes enough. Maybe eight games is better. I always like ten games just to try and get a little feel of just where they are. Their 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 kind of dominance in the in the shots count probably will regress a little bit once they play some harder teams. But you know, as of now, after these six games, there's very little that you could fault them with. They they lost five starters. They brought in kind of replacements who were cheaper and a little bit less known. They had a new manager. There's a lot of upheaval, a lot of change, and basically, 
They've been brilliant. Who finishes higher, season. Southampton or Everton? Oh, man. Southampton. I think the knock... Uh, the, one reason I didn't... There's a little kind of... A little bit down on Everton this year. I think Europe would have kind of had a little effect on them with playing Thursday, Sunday, as it does on most teams. They haven't got a, a, a big squad. They've got the oldest squad in the league. And some of their save percentage numbers from last year probably weren't going to hold again this year. I think Everton could... I think this could be a... Would Everton finish out of that seven? I don't know. Maybe. It could happen. It's, it's pretty interesting. Um, Spurs, I think, don't quite know what's going on um, in terms of Pochettino. They've got a lot of development they still need to do. Uh, United are United have so much firepower that like, you have to say they're going to figure it out at some point. And Van Gaal is a good manager, regardless. Um, so the other team that I just wanted to, to talk about briefly before we, we disappear uh, from, from the PL for a bit is, is Swansea. Swansea, there are a couple different um, you know, predictive models that I look at in terms of like you know regular uh, shots differentials and like kind of advanced stats type stuff that's behind the scenes. Swansea are really tricky in that like their basic shots numbers are terrible. They they, they they're scoring or they're shooting nine times a game. Their their shots against are um, sixteen. Yeah, sixteen and a third. So like you're like wow, that's that's awful. That that looks like a, a bottom bottom tier team. I think that they'll equal out at some point. Um, you know, there's a red card in there. They should be a little bit better. But if you look at their their shots on target numbers, it's not actually as bad. Um, yeah, they're they're almost flat uh, in that area. In terms of their defense, they they look a bit better than they 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 actually do in t- overall shots given up. They're not giving up as good of chances. So like, I don't think that Swansea are amazing, but I'm also not completely shocked by where they are in the table right now. No, it's a difficult one. Obviously, they they won. Did they win the first couple of games? There was like Swansea and Gary Monk for England, and all these kind of like jokey suggestions <laughs> and all the rest of it, you know. But you do look at it; they're kind of like the inverse of what we just talked about with with Arsenal and Liverpool, where you know they Arsenal and Liverpool are a very good shots team that were giving up too many shots on target, and it's kind of like Swansea are a little bit kind of the other way. They're giving up tons and tons of shots, minus seven shots a game. And like you said, they're, they're kind of more or less even in shots on target. And I think part of that is just how deep they play. You know, we talked to, I think we talked a bit, I'm not sure if it was on a podcast or on Twitter, where I kind of I kind of said to you that they reminded me of how Rodgers uh, used to have Swansea playing, where it was a lot of kind of defensive possession in their kind of own final third. They'd sit quite deep, they'd, they, you know, they do the, the kind of defensive basic structure things first. And I think part of the reason is they're not giving up tons and tons of shots on target is they are playing pretty deep in in kind of in their own zone, and I don't know with Swansea. I don't think they have. I don't think they're the most talented team in the in the world, and that's a lot of shots to be given up a game. It is. It depends which and usually depends which number. That amount uh, means that you will be in relegation contention and stuff. Yeah, and it depends if we're talking about. So obviously the minus seven shots a game and just about zero shots on target a game depends which number you think is going to regress. Maybe that shots on target number gets a lot worse, and you know the shots numbers remain the same. If that happens, they're in a, they're in a little bit of bother. I think Swansea. Yeah, that's they don't have. Yeah, go on. No, I was just going to say I, I think you're you're right, and and this is a, a clear area where you want more data. Uh, but you know, at this point, they have ten points, so you know, good for them. The other team that has ten points that is completely ridiculous is Aston Villa. <laughs> yeah, it is, and this and this is the kind of thing of whether you think ten points on the board this early in the season should be more or less safety and you know you're gonna really have to be absolutely terrible from here on out really to be honest to to fail to get what 27 28 points from the remainder of the games would be absolutely terrible for swansea will be fine 
but I don't think all this kind of sunshine and, and lightness at Swansea in terms of uh, in terms of their tactical setup and how much talent they've got. I think they're, they're a little bit short at the moment. But Villa, Villa are one if you want to talk about Villa quickly. Well, I, Villa are tricky because like their pace is really slow. Like they really make things grindy and they they want to counter attack. They want to they want to bring you in. They they're very disruptive in in midfield. Um, somehow. Uh, Paul Lambert, after exiling Alan Hutton for two seasons, like literally oh two seasons, and where, where Alan Hutton was not good enough to play in any league except for maybe the championship, and even then they didn't want him. Um, he's back, and he actually doesn't look terrible, and Senderos doesn't look terrible. I, I, I don't understand what's going on there, other than I know they've gotten pretty lucky. Um, here's another one that, that is sort of contentious. And you brought it up uh, when we were chatting earlier. What about Leicester? Like, what do we think about Leicester? They've got eight points right now. They only have a minus one goal differential. Yeah, it's only minus one. Yeah, they have had a tough schedule, and this is this is a tricky one. And uh, with with Leicester, Leicester they're basically minus eleven shots a game, which is on course to be worse than that famous tremendous Derby County side, which got about nine points in two thousand and seven <laughs> or whenever it was, something like that. So obviously, I don't think Leicester are that bad, but it's, it's worth pointing out that they're giving up 20 shots a game. League average is 12 and a half. That is an enormous number. Obviously, the schedule is difficult. Obviously, they played some powerhouses in United and Chelsea and all the rest of it. But I think I think you have to keep a little eye out on Leicester. I think they've been a little bit kind of lucky so far in the kind of the number of chances they've they've scored on. You know, they do basically. I think it was against Man United. Was it four goals on five shots or five on six or something crazy six, like that? Yeah. Five on six, which is just absolutely bananas. Ah, that's sustainable. Sure. <laughs> absolutely. It helps when you play Man United. You play Man United every week and you're, you're kind of attacking against two defenders. <laughs> I, guess it's, I guess it probably will be sustainable. But Leicester are a really interesting case. Like They they kind of look terrible so far, but they've played some really tough teams. They've been a little bit lucky. I'm I'm a little worried about Leicester. But then again, it's points on the board, isn't it? You know? it, it is. Eight and points. Yeah, that's, if you get lucky, eventually... It won't matter, you know. If you're lucky for long enough, it, 38 games, 38 games doesn't uh, sort of completely uh, come out to skill. I think you'd actually need like a 50 game season where you'd have like a really high correlation between skill and uh, and um, and sort of luck, averaging out. Like for Leicester, I, the one thing that I I would caution is is if they continue to give up shots at that rate, and we definitely want more data and we want more games, but if they continue to give up shots at that rate, I don't think anyone hasn't been relegated that's given up like 19 and 20 shots a game. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's... Like, you couldn't. I think if you were to a minus 10 shots team every game, I don't see how you could kind of stave off those probabilities and those just, just look even itself out over a certain number of games. I don't think you could kind of stave that off. But it is interesting with Leicester and Villa. They do have points on the board. They're both getting outshot pretty handily, and you know they've both been a little bit lucky. But you know Villa with on ten points, you know it should be pretty difficult for them to get relegated from here. You never know. The predictive metrics you, say that QPR by far are the worst team in the league again. Well, I th- and I think you know I think a lot of people would agree with that who've who've watched QPR. Their shots numbers are okay, but when you watch them, it just it just doesn't look right. Like they just they just don't look to have any kind of cohesion or or tactical setup or plan. It just looks like. What it is, but, a collection of players put together. But you know? is, is almost even. They take almost it, 50% of the shots. But if you look deeper, the shots that they give up versus the shots they take are, are really sort of disparity in there. 
Yeah, I think so. And, you know, it's just a funny one with QPR. I think if you, if you kind of look at that, they spent tons and tons of time losing. You know, there's 285 minutes out of 540 minutes, which is, you know, over half the minutes. They, they spend so much time losing. And what happens when you do that is you tend to, you tend to outshoot the opposition. You know, the opposition sat back, they kind of sit there and say, you can't break us down, and then you end up taking tons of shots like Balotelli does from 40 yards that sail over the bar. And, you know, sometimes that's, that's one of the issues I have with TSR sometimes, or the kind of shot ratio or whatever you want to actually call it, is, you know, it can be a little misleading if you spent tons and tons of time in the lead or tons and tons of time trailing. It can be it can be really, really boosted just just by that simple effect of, of trailing in a game, yeah, One, I, the, the leading side sits back. The, the the side that's trailing is really, really desperate to get back in the game. Ends up shooting from shitty locations and getting all their shots blocked. And you know, yeah, it's so. it's really complicated. I, at the end of the day, building building this stuff in and figuring out what matters the most and what's most predictive. Or or you've got a, a team like Villa and and QPR that that sort of look somewhat similar. Uh, at least they're in the same neighborhood in terms of um, you know their their ratios and and um, and that, but one of them has games where there are a total of 20 shots a game. The other one has games where there are 30 shots a game. And mm. you know, QPR have no defensive organization, and Aston Villa have a ton of defensive organization. Yeah, it, it's, it's weird with Aston Villa. They're, they're kind of shots against, and when you kind of plot them, if you plot shots for and shots against, and have a look at it, they remind me a lot of Stoke, of how Stoke used to look under Pulis, yep. where basically they were being heavily outshot. There was no absolutely no doubt about it. But it was very interesting that the, the kind of the teams that they were around, it was they were looking a lot different. It was all about shot suppression and all about trying to trying to prevent the opposition from getting any kind of quality shots on your goal and just preventing volume as well, Villa. And that's kind of what Villa looked like to me so far. But again, some of this is due to score effects. You know, they they were leading games. They were getting a, a, a fluky goal from a corner after the sixth minute, and then they just shut it down. Yeah, and you know they just shut the entire game down. This is why we need more games and we need more data on both Aston Villa and Leicester. We need to see how they kind of perform against different quality of opposition and in different kind of game scenarios as well. What happens when Villa are trailing and they have to go for it in the last half an hour? Are they able? Do they have enough firepower to do so? Same with, same with Leicester. We need to find those things out. So uh, is, uh, is Danny Welbeck the new Thierry Henry? Oh, we saw this on Twitter. I, you know, I actually wrote a response and then deleted it. And it <laughs> it's went, probably better that way. It went, it went something along the lines of, I will give up everything I have and become a a monk in the, the hills of Nepal or something like that. It was something, something absolutely crazy. It's Danny Welbeck, the new Thierry Henry. I'll let you answer that, Ted. You'll love to answer this. No, I, clearly this is not the case. I, I, I wrote something uh, right around the, the transfer um, period that said, or right after the deadline days, uh, basically I would take Welbeck over Falcao uh, in terms of goal-scoring expectation this season and also in the future. Um, and also like, you know, one season of Falcao is the same amount as, as all of the seasons of Welbeck for however long Dealey is signed. Um, but, you know, like, let's not go overboard. I, 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 <laughs> I may have written something last year that said that Daniel Sturridge's profile looks like, you know, he, we could say he's not Thierry Henry yet in terms of goal scoring, but at some point he, he might be. And honestly, with how, with how Sturridge has scored over the last like, 20 months or whatever, he could be like Sturge, Sturge looks like, despite the fact he's injured a lot, he's one of the best scorers that the Premier League has ever had. Not not just you know one of the best scorers in recent times has ever had. Uh, can he sustain that? Well, he's he's in his prime. It, it could happen. Danny Welbeck, much bigger question. Danny Welbeck, I wouldn't say he's as good as Sturge right now. He could be. He, he's he's in a better team. We'll say a better creative team. But 
Yeah. That's another thing we said. We, we talked about this on the last pod, how Welbeck was a very kind of tough nut to kind of analyse because he played so much time in the wing and so much time up front and different teams and all the rest of it. I just There's a simple one I always come back to with Welbeck. If you talk about the very, very best strikers that, that kind of have ever played in the league, you know, and Henri was probably the, the second best one for me after Shearer. They always shot a lot. It was just such a high volume of shots. They were able to get themselves into positions to shoot, able to get themselves into very good positions to shoot. It's something that Welbeck has never been able to do. Even when he was playing up front, it was, it was, his shot volume was probably about three a game. And even if you talk about someone like Sturridge, as you just did, Sturridge was over five shots a game, five and a half yeah, shots well, a game. Yeah, whenever he's been the main option, yeah. Sturridge has been over five. Yeah, and it's compl- that's a completely different level. Elite strikers tend to be over four and a half, five shots a game. That's very non-scientific. It's just a little quick eyeball, back of a fag packet test. You tend to be over four and a half, five shots a game. They, they kind of it, it tends to be for Suarez as it does for Aguero, as it as it probably did for Van Persie, as it sometimes did for Rooney. This this is what happened. The very best ones shoot a lot and often and from good positions. And Welbeck didn't do that at United. He may well do this at Arsenal. It may well be about set up for Welbeck. You know, playing behind all those great passes in Arsenal's midfield with a lot of movement with Ozil and Sanchez, he may well catch fire at Arsenal and end up shooting five times a game and end up being the sole centre-forward option and scoring tons and tons of goals. We don't really know yet, but it was a good bet anyway. Yeah, Yaya Sonogo has shot a ton of times for Arsenal and, well, I mean, you know, Yaya Sonogo, so... But it's interesting. What was Giroud like as it, in terms of, of like volume of shots? Uh, I think it's between three point five and four. I can look back. Give me two seconds. It's in the in the database. Um, actually, last year he was down to three point two four. The year before that, it was um, actually just above four. Um, at Montpellier, he was um, all the way up near four and a half. Um, the the season that he was at Montpellier, uh, I would have signed him, especially for eleven million. Like he looked really good. It's just yeah. that. You know, he was good for Montpellier in, in France. He's not necessarily great for Arsenal. And he was 25 when they signed him. Like, he was, he was kind of in his peak year. And that's exactly what his profile looks like. You know, he, he had a, a, not a great year the year before that. He had an excellent year then. And then he comes to Arsenal, and he's been okay. We would say he's an average striker in kind of that setup, but not good. And should Arsenal have a better striker than that? Well, yeah, generally. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I, I still think it'd be quite interesting to see Giroud if we talked about Arsenal's kind of ability to outshoot the opposition and generate shots for before. If Arsenal are going to carry on this, and this is about their new talent and adding Sanchez to this mix, and this is who Arsenal are going to be now, it'd be interesting to see how Giroud kind of performs in this team once it's settled, once the kind of personnel is okay, and some of these injuries have cooled off if that ever happens. It'd be interesting to see how Giroud performs in this team because you know we, we looked at Giroud's numbers for the past two years. This was in the Arsenal team that were, were declining in terms of shots. They were kind of, you know, they were steadily going down. They were steadily getting worse. And now this season, Arsenal shooting tons and tons of times. I'd be interested to see Giroud in this team. He may well look miles out of place in terms of his footwork, his ability to keep the ball and pass the ball with I, Sanchez and Brazil. Yeah, I don't it's know. Tr- it's, my, my big question is the movement that's required now. Like that's, and that's been a, a thing for Arsenal for a while. Like you really want kind of the buzzing of the bees, right? Like the, the best movers in the Premier League um, for the last few years have been City. Like City's movement is unbelievable, and it's so hard for defenses to keep up with them, to switch perfectly every time, to close down the ball and not leave somebody on an overlap, which happens all the time. Um, and then there's a, a fairly easy cutback from Zabaleta or Kolarov or whomever. Like, 
Arsenal right now are are close to that. I would say that they're one they're literally one piece short, and that's a defensive midfielder that can run and pass. Um, and if they get that piece, like they actually would suddenly be very competitive because this is the first time in, since probably Seskin and Ben Percy were playing together that I feel like they have real quality up front. Yeah, and I think this is probably the first, I know it's early days in the season, but I think this is, I agree with you, the first time I've actually felt positive for a while, you know, since that great talent drain that happened, the the Torre, the Adebayor, the Fabregas, the the Nazari, you know, all, you know, since all those went, this is probably the most talented forward team Arsenal have had. But like I said, and we talked about earlier, they're probably just a few signings short. And it's, it's maddening, it must be maddening as an Arsenal fan where you just basically say, one transfer window, just go and get that defensive midfielder. Yeah, go and get been, another forward. It's been a two-year problem, but it's it's literally like three players. You'd look at three players now. Where you, uh, maybe a really really good young defensive uh, midfielder. Same with the centre back and the forward. And you're looking at it, you're like, wow, we're almost there. Yeah, la- last year they, you know? they instead of signing a real defensive midfielder, they signed Flamini because they knew him and he was cheap and he, you know, he was basically <coughs> bog average in terms of that type of player in the league. And again, yeah. you know, Arsenal are trying to to move up into the the top tier. All right, so let's let's switch switch gears for a bit. Um, talk briefly about some Champions League. Um, it's been a, a weird first two games in a lot of ways. Like the the big teams have not dominated. The the smaller teams like Malmo, you know, <laughs> are, are coming out with three points. And you know, they they did they gave Juve a, a bit of a run for a while. Um, the Ludogorets, you know, unfortunately zero points, but do they? They they gave Liverpool and, and Real Madrid a, a run for it, so you know they they might not be so bad. Uh, yeah, anything you've seen? Anything crop up? I just I just think we've seen a lot of actual closeness and, and close games. You know, I've seen this a lot of people on Twitter and a lot of people that do betting saying that this has been a, a not great start to the Champions <laughs> League betting season. If you put it like that, that'd be putting it diplomatically. I think, but you are looking at that. I think everyone last night expected Ludogorets to get absolutely destroyed on the handicap and you know there's one goal in it versus Real Madrid and I'm not sure what we can actually glean from the, the Champions League so far you know Bayern have won twice and PSG pulled off a pretty nice win against Barcelona but PSG are pretty good at home yeah. I'm not sure how much of a shock that actually was I, I mean, to people. if you look at it you say like Chelsea are kind of getting some business done but they drew at home against Schalke Maribor yeah. Maribor I don't even know where Maribor is <laughs> has two points two draws in that in that group against Sporting Schalke Chelsea like that's a tough group. Uh, Bate Borisov, which sounds like a Rocky and Bullwinkle villain, actually have three points. You know, they, so you know it's it's kind of interesting. This is, you know, Will Sean uh, Sean Ingle, who's a big fan of the show actually, and uh, kind of bugs me regularly for us to. Are you doing a podcast this week? Um, <laughs> he, he said uh, he wrote a piece in, in the Guardian recently saying how how boring essentially the, the Champions League group stages have been because you know the best teams just keep winning, uh, which sets up really great. You know quarterfinals and uh, on, but it this year feels like at least in the first two games it might be a little different. Yeah, I think it does feel a little bit different, but then again, it's just the first two games. It's actually quite nice to have close group games to have the the, the kind of minnows do all right. You know, it's nice to see Liverpool back. It's also nice to see that a, a smaller team beat them. I you know, Ajax haven't haven't lost yet in their group, which has PSG yeah. and Barcelona and Apoel. Uh, and Bilbao, yeah, and Bilbao lost, and obviously Maribor drew. I can't believe Maribor drew away with Schalke. Yeah, Bilbao so. been terrible, like unbelievably yeah. bad. And uh, you know, City are doing about how we expect them to do in Europe. 
I think so. And I think these are nicely, which is terrible. See, I don't even, I don't even bite on the jokes anymore about Man City in Europe. I think I've developed a, a kind of a wall, this kind of cold emotional system. Ben just goes home and polishes his mock Premier League trophy. You know, exactly, yeah. he's yeah, got we'll he's got that. an FA Cup or two there as no, well. The, 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 the two and three years and the, the budding dynasty, as the, as the Americans might call it. But um, no, I think. Uh, Man City. I, I don't expect anything from Man City in the Champions League anymore. Like, it's just on a quick point in them, they they seem to everything that makes them a very good side in the in the Premier League, they almost either consciously or subconsciously forget how to do in the Champions League. Maybe it's they're, they're more wary about being counterattacked by tactically better teams or or teams with better attacking talent. I don't know what it is, but they just don't look the same team. They don't have that same dominance and that same kind of will to kind of just. You know, put their tactical game plan on the game. You just don't have it. It's, it's very strange. But I like the Champions League as it started right now. It's close. There's no, there's very very few six point teams and zero point teams. It's, it's, this is nice. To be fair to City, they they've had to play Bayern twice, and I actually think Roma are probably the toughest of opponents they've played in in recent years in in the group aside from Bayern. Like Roma are really good. They have a great manager. They have real depth of talent. They bought awesome. Uh, you, you look at them, they've got Strootman and De Rossi out, and their midfield still looks great with, like, Nangolain, and so they, they've done really well, they, you know, and they've also sold awesome, too, like, Benatia, I think they got for 11 million euros or something absurd, and they, they sold them off for 30 the next year to, they sold um, uh, La Mea for 30 million pounds, and then they go, they, they get Lyagic for, uh, for, like, 12 million euros off of Fiorentina, so, like, that, that type of, of player trading has been really impressive, and they have a hell of a manager. Yeah, they do. And Roma are a very good side, and I think a lot of Man City fans are very frustrated after after um, uh, Tuesday night saying, you know, Torre doesn't try, and why are we terrible in Europe? It's like, well, not terrible in Europe. Go and look at the groups we've had over the previous three years. The three hardest groups yeah. in the entire tournament, each arguably. Maybe this year it might look a little bit easier on paper, but they've drawn Bayern twice. They've had Dortmund, they've had Real Madrid, they've had Roma here, they had Napoli. They've just had uh, just insane groups that are very, very difficult to overcome. And it's very nice to actually see this and refreshing, as you alluded to with Sean Ingle saying it's getting boring. It's nice that there's no easy games. This is what it should be about. Yeah. The Champions League should be insanely difficult. There shouldn't be any gimmies like Chelsea maybe thought that Schalke at home might have been a, a relatively easy game and they kind of dropped a few and kind of changed the team around. But it wasn't, and it's nice to have the Champions League like this. Yeah, Malmo beat Olympiacos, who made it into the the knockout rounds last year. Like, you know, Malmo's not a big club in. I mean, they're big in Sweden, but you know, in terms of. Could you could you name a single Malmo player? No, I can't. I I can name a couple of Olympiacos guys because they used to be on Chelsea or not Chelsea, but Fulham. But uh. (laughs) oh my god, isn't isn't I do? I thought for a moment I thought that was Freddie Adu playing centre midfield for Malmo, yeah. and it was not. I was just oh my god. Although uh, they he's been around as well. Like, like, yeah, no, they have, they have they have someone called. I hope that's a Peter Forsberg, but I don't think it is. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard of these guys either. Emil Forsberg plays left wing for Malmo, but no, I, and it's nice. It's nice to have a a, a a Malmo come in and actually do well. And you know they played all right yesterday. Yeah. They outshot. Well, they nearly are just about tied with shots with Olympiacos. I think I do know who Marcus Rosenberg is. He's he's been around for quite a while, but beyond that, wasn't wasn't he on loan at Aston Villa? Uh, might have been. They, no. they had a good Sweden connection. Uh, I just know him from the the Sweden team. Like I followed that. Like I like to watch the ten. So, um, uh, no, but you know, it's, it's just we go back to this. I don't think this kind of parity will will last 
until the sixth game. I don't think we're going to see Malmo in a mix to kind of qualify ahead of Juve or Madrid. No, I, I, but it's a, it's a nice little start. We'll, we'll give it another two games, and maybe we'll come back and, and see sort of who we feel. Yeah, and also, like, the league form, you know, carries over to the Champions League, too. Uh, I, I've, already, I've already made my mind up he's going to win the competition. Anyway, oh, okay. Well, you can inform people. I haven't made up my mind up. I, I, I still think... I think Real Madrid might be the first team to repeat in a long while. I think they... Although there's a few issues with defensive midfield and how they deal with counter-attacks at the moment, obviously they're still trying to adjust without Alonso. I, this, is, this is basically the same team as last year with Cruz instead of Alonso and they've, they've added Hammes to, the, to this and they've, got, and they've probably upgraded in, in, the, in that as well. They've got a better goalkeeper. It's the same team. They still have insane talent and they can score their way out of problems. That's the one thing that kind of... I think the clubs need, especially in knockout competitions, 20 minutes left, half an hour left, can you score your way out of those issues? And they have, the, by miles, the best forward line in the world, I, I think. I, I would say a team that isn't the same as last year, but that team made it quite far, Chelsea should be definitely in the mix. Like, this, this year in particular, you know, you look at them and they can unlock teams. They've got real depth of, of scoring, especially, like, sure, they're coming on late, um, you know, Willian for, for defensive purposes, whatever. Um, I would say that Chelsea are probably one of those teams that you look at. I don't know how to evaluate the new Barcelona. Like, they've been awesome in La Liga. They got broken down by you know, set pieces, which are, again, uh, going to be a problem. Like, if you would take the two things that, that sort of underdog teams do well often, it's counterattack and set pieces. And Barcelona are going to have to face good teams that are, wanna, that are experts at that. Uh, it's a real challenge. Um, it is, yeah, it is a real challenge. We've got to move on, so... Sorry, um, we're, we're going we're gonna to run into like millions and millions of minutes this week. But um, two more things. One, uh, the Mir is looking for a, a football data and stats guy. And uh, they asked me to, to, to mention it on here. Um, go ahead and check out their job postings. Uh, but the, the Mir is looking for a full-time position, basically a football data and stats journalist. And it can't be me because I'm too busy and, you know, uh, but it might be one of you guys. And yeah, I encourage people to go and apply for that. It does sound like a very good job in London. Now. Yeah, it's cool, you know, and it is probably located in, in England or, or in London um, regularly. But, it, you know, if you're one of those young guys looking to break into it, and obviously I'm often encouraging people to write more. So uh, that's definitely something that is a, a pretty cool position. Uh, and sort of on the same vein, uh, Ben and I have been asked uh, regularly about where we get our data from. Where do you get your data from, Ben? A million places. Now, um, it depends what you want, I, I guess. Um, if you want very basic kind of numbers on teams, with whether it be shots or or pass percentage or any of these kind of things, you'd have to look at ESPN and Who Scored are two of the, the two of the best sites where you are able to get data from. If you want, you know, some data that's a little bit more advanced, maybe you want shot location or pass location or cross location. You need to be looking at Squawker and uh, the Stats Zone app, I think, which is on 442 Magazine. Yeah. Those would be my, my main four. There's also a kind of side one, which is really super, super useful for, for a lot of kind of player stuff that people do. And that would be Transfer Market for, for minutes played for certain players. Those are the, the big five, I would say. I'm not sure if I'm missing anything there. Though. No, I, I think that's fairly accurate. That's definitely the stuff that when I was trying to, to build... Um you know, sort of a, a bunch of source material. Those were the ones that I looked at. And, you know, honestly, like, in a lot of cases, to start anyway, it was just who scored and 
and transfer market gets me, you know, the aggregate stuff that I, I wanted. Um, you know, it, it's really tricky. Uh, I, I've, I've talked about this in writing recently and kind of all along. Like, getting data is the hardest thing to, to get started. And people ask us regularly because that's true. Um, but, you know, the data companies have to make money. Um, the data providers, the people that are publishing it, like who scored and Squawka, like they have to have a business model that makes sense because the data isn't cheap. There's no, there's no like single user license that lets you log into to Opta's database and and be able to to pull any seasons or whatever. Like I, for a single user license, I I definitely would have paid a considerable amount of money, you know, like a subscription fee that <coughs> that I would I would use every single time. But unfortunately, like that doesn't exist over here, like it might in the United States. So. Um, yeah, and, and then you, you run into problems where you know you can't republish this stuff because you don't have the rights. And so, despite the fact that people want to to do academic research and be able to publish their data sets, like if you didn't collect the data yourself, you aren't the rights holder for that data, and therefore republishing it, you have to own the rights to do so. And once again, that's expensive. It's a it's a murky old water, isn't it? But you know, I think I'll bring this back to the kind of the piece you wrote on Statsbomb. Uh, you know, with the the kind of the different world we'd live in if Bill James had been hired. You know, it's a, a fantastic piece where Ted talks about baseball, and if Bill James had been hired early on by a club, what would the knock-on of effect would have been? Would it have been the slower uptake of data into baseball, and that would have had another knock-on effect into into different sports? But I think to kind of answer one of your questions on that on that kind of piece, Ted, it was I think a lot of it is about data. When you you kind of questioned if ten clubs wanted to hire ten analysts now, could they do it? And you kind of said no, and I, I probably agree with you for, for the level of kind of expertise they want. And I think there's one reason why people aren't writing more, or people aren't doing more investigations, or people aren't looking at weirder stuff or cooler stuff, is there just isn't easy to grab data. No, and it's just not. And, and some of that is due to legal things, as you talked about. But I, d I don't think there is. There's just not. You know, if you think of the NHL, the NHL published all its statistics on one page, or baseball. All of them are there. You can find historic stuff, and you can find. The scoring rates, how they change, the individual player rates, everything's in that one place. You can pull them all out there, whip them up in a database and say, oh, this is the average scoring rate for a 26-year-old. No, this is a 27-year-old. We can do that. It is possible to do that now, but it takes a lot of hours over several different sites of pulling it all together into a database and then doing it. And some of it is about available data, I think. Well, that's one of the things that, that Colin and I have kind of run into over the years where like, you will spend an absurd amount of time pulling the data together, um, cleaning it, and then doing the analysis, and then finally the write-up. So you spend a ton of time doing that, and you publish it, and literally, like, within the first 10 comments that you get, either on Twitter or, like, on the comments or whatever, is, hey, why didn't you do this? Or, hey, why didn't you do that? Or, you should do this in this way. And you're like, man, you know, I've, I've busted my ass to do this, and obviously you're not paying for it, and it's free. And, like, I do it because it's fun, but I only have so much time. You know, <laughs> it's not... I'm, and we're not professionals in the, that area, and because of that, you know, the the eight hours that you spend or the ten hours that you spend, you know, not playing games, not reading books, not doing whatever, you do this because you like it. It's just so, so often you run into like a flat wall where there's just no appreciation for that. No, it's not, and it, and it is a pretty thankless task. You have to remember you just sat in a room in front of a computer with Excel or whichever program you want to use and you just kind of input and stuff and like, oh God, it's taking ages, ages. You know, but it is fun. The investigation for me is, is the funnest bit. Thinking of an idea, going and grabbing all the data, putting it all together and see if your kind of idea rings true or not or maybe it's false or whatever. That is a really super fun bit. Posting on Twitter and have someone there, 
someone kind of shoot it down within three minutes is probably the least fun part of of writing stuff like that. But I would encourage, you know, when you talked about there not being enough analysts and we need more people writing and more people should write, I'd encourage everyone just to try and just go and grab your own data. There are places out there you can get it. Go and grab some data on. It could be a team or it could be a player or it could be a league. And just start writing about it. Yeah, and it's, it's actually it's, it's interesting. It's crystal like, clear in so many ways that like this is a market that's growing, and there is going to be a huge need, just a massive need, over the coming years of teams to to be able to hire these guys, and not just teams, uh, journalism too. Like you have that in order to <coughs> to write and sort of talk to the fan that is interested in like fantasy football and stuff like that. You kind of have to to have guys that are capable of doing that at a pretty good level, and it you're not going to do it right at the beginning. Uh, I, I've made plenty of mistakes. I've made things that were wrong when I learned more information. Like, but that's part of the fun, right? Because in a lot of cases, you're able to discover new things. Yeah, this this is true. Like you, everyone's going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes in the way you put the data together, or the, the conclusion. Or, but the, it's all about a process and about a kind of little learning curve. And you know, it's it's a lot. It's a lot of fun when you realise that you're now able to do things you couldn't three months ago or five months ago or you have better data collection skills, or you're analyzing the data better. It's a lot of fun to see your own progression and kind of do it. And I think more people should do this in the public environment. We said in a previous podcast, basically think of it, you know, sometimes, say if you want to be a journalist, or you want to be a football journalist, or work for a football club, you have to kind of think of this as a couple of years of, of basically free labor, of a free internship, essentially. Well, you're, Just kind of you're building a stuff. portfolio. It's like being an artist. Um, you know, you're building a data portfolio, and this is what I'm capable of, and these are the projects that I've done. And, you know, if, if you say it that way, like, it makes perfect sense. You know, you, artists work for free to some extent, but, you know, when, when you're looking at jobs or, or you know, trying to get um, featured or whatever, like, this type of stuff is, is useful to, to reference back to. And, I, I, you know, I do kind of joke about Twitter being somewhat negative sometimes, but the fact of the matter is it's also allowed me to interact with some really cool people and people who have also given us free work, um, whether it be uh, fixing the website, which we had a ton of help with, or um, you know, Sammy Hernia, um, who is almost done with the, the prototype for the, the public radar uh, site, which we still plan to get out before the end of the year. It's, it's ongoing. Mm. But like that, to me, is you know, worth all of the effort that I've, I've put in before. Uh, <coughs> and it's, you know, it's, it's him giving back to us, too, and to you guys. So. Yeah, I know, and, and Twitter's great for that. But it, but it is, for, for the people who are asking questions about where to get data from and how do I do it, you know, it's something I had when I first started in whatever it was, 2010, like obviously from watching hockey. And I had no idea this data even existed for football. And I stumbled on ESPN once, and there was all the data. And off and off and away, and then, you know, you kind of run with it and you take it from there. Basically, for the people asking questions about data, the data is out there. It takes a little bit of time to kind of collect it all up. But it's worth it, and these people sh- should write about it as well. Don't just collect it. Go and write about it. Go and publish new ideas or write about your favorite team in a little bit of a different way than you kind of normally might read in a newspaper. And also if there are a few of guys that start hooking up together and, and you know, you guys can kind of work off the data set, the same data set and stuff like that's that's obviously saves a bunch of work overall. Like finding the person to be able to organize that um, is, is a bit tricky because it does take some technical knowledge. But again, if you're if you're kind of looking at economies of scale and how to make it easier, like that's the way to do it. Yeah, and I think so. And the one last point, if anyone ever wants to get into it, it really, really is worth it. There's someone that a few of us kind of know, an ice hockey guy called uh, Tyler Dello, who was MC79, and he kind of looked at the progression of his blog from 2003 all the way through to, to this year, just writing very cleverly about the Oilers, more intelligent, and slowly you could see his progression, learning about numbers, and then learning how to scrape, and then learning how to incorporate screenshots, and then video, 
and kind of all this added together to this really, really ace analysis, and then boom, he was kind of pulled out of the sky. It's, his website <laughs> shut down, and he's hired by a club. It basically the hard work and the learning of those new skills pays off. It's so frustrating for the hire. fans, though. Like guys disappear, oh, and you're like, oh my god, who do I read now? Like the there are eight guys that, that disappeared this summer that you used to read for hockey stuff, and you don't even know who to go to anymore. There is, the, the ice hockey stuff is just gone. Eric T is gone. There's tons of guys gone. Half of the Vancouver Canucks guys who used to write about data and the Vancouver Canucks, they're all gone. It's horrible. Everyone's gone. It's, it's over. <laughs> God damn it. How dare they? They just shut it all down just for themselves. They were just greedy and just kind of snatching it all away. <laughs> and, and actually, I think that hit Tyler as well. Like uh, The extra skater site... Um, got hired by by the Maple Leafs and I know that some of those data guys were using that site and it disappeared and people didn't have like internal backups or whatever so now they have to create their own data sets like oh god it's just yeah it is it's very <laughs> difficult it's, I'm amazed that there's not been well amazed I've not heard that there's not been more public guys coders have been hired there's one guy called Ninja Greg who runs a that runs a website about tracks every shot in the in the, the league over the last six seven years I'm amazed that he's not been hired there are coders out there you just have to literally tell them what to pull down you know so all these skills kind of add up if you if you have some of these skills if you can code if you can scrape if you can do that kind of stuff you know write about football write about numbers in football and, it's, and it's really interesting I'll tell topic. you honestly like championship teams are, are starting to kind of aggressively look at this some of the sizes of the, the academies and, and such you know even from the championship up it's really quite impressive, you know, and there will be owners out there in the coming years that are like, okay, well, you know, this has worked in my business. So like, let's, let's put this down into the football club. And, you know, it, I, you just see the world changing. It's, it's worth the effort. You know, maybe you can be the, one of those hockey guys that makes a name for themselves and people remember 10 years from now. Um, you know, I know, I know Ben and I have guys that we respect that we still talk to, um, but who started writing about hockey early on and who, who stayed really smart. Uh, so, you know, it's, I, we're encouraging you to do it. We do it. It's fun. Um, the data questions are, are the difficult ones, but I think especially if you start to collaborate with other people, it gets a lot easier. Yeah, I agree with all that. All right, well, we're going to wrap that up. Thank you for listening to us, Babylon. Um, we'll be back probably in a couple of weeks to, to do this again. In the, in the meantime, my name is Ted Knutson, and this is Benjamin Pugsley. And we're logging off. Signing off. Bye. Signing off. Take care.